Hi, this is Dr. Peter Osborne, and today we'll be mapping vitamin B12 on the 15-Minute Matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'm so pleased to be talking with Dr. Peter Osborne. Dr. Osborne is the clinical director of Origins Healthcare in Sugarland, Texas. He is world-renowned in the fields of gluten and grain sensitivity and one of the most sought-after functional medicine doctors in the country. He is the author of the highly acclaimed bestseller, No Grain, No Pain, published by Simon & Schuster. Dr. Osborne is a doctor of chiropractic, board-certified in clinical nutrition, pastoral medicine, and an advisor for Functional Medicine University. He is passionate about educating patients and health professionals on healing through root cause resolution. Dr. Osborne, thank you so much for joining me on the 15-Minute Matrix. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm thrilled to be able to talk about B12. It's something that comes up a lot in many of our practices. And I'm wondering if you could just start us off by talking about some of the signs and symptoms we might see with a B12 deficiency. Absolutely. So first and foremost, for most people in my experience, B12 deficiency will either manifest as severe fatigue with shortness of breath due to the fact that it can create anemias. And um, secondarily, depression and anxiety are very close second and third runner-ups. Those are really, really the big ones. So if you're struggling with somebody who's maybe got a depression or an anxiety issue, they don't know why, maybe they've been medicated or told they need to visit a psychiatrist, you know, think B12. It very often is an underpinning piece. When you think about the B12, are you thinking about the complex of B vitamins first, or do you go more directly to the single nutrient? I always clinically look at all the B vitamins as a complex together, just because of their inner inner reactivity. But I always test. And so a lot of times when I'm testing patients to to determine what deficiencies they have, B12 is, is hands down the most common deficiency I see in my practice. Now, that being said, my practice is largely focused on autoimmune people right. with a gluten undertone, and that gluten is notorious for creating damage to the cells in the stomach that allow us to properly absorb vitamin B12. Those parietal cells make intrinsic factor, which is critical for vitamin B12 absorption, and that's one of the big reasons why I see it so frequently, I think. Yeah, it's a good point when we start to look at these interconnections in the body and how many things could be impacted then. And this is where we come up with diagnoses like non-celiac gluten sensitivity that get sometimes dismissed by allopathic medicine. It's understanding these pathways and what could be happening. So if we head over to the left side of the matrix and think about the triggers that could cause a B12 deficiency, you're talking about the health and function of the parietal cells, what else? Yeah, so the health and function of the parietal cells, the health and function of the distal small intestine, the ileum, which is where a lot of our B12 goes in. So once the parietal cells secrete intrinsic factor and acid, 
the B12 is taxicabbed by intrinsic factor down the small intestine to where it then gets absorbed in the distal ileum. And gluten-induced GI damage is notorious for hitting that area. So we'll see people oftentimes for more than one reason from a gluten perspective have that greater predisposition to developing a vitamin B12 deficiency. Additionally, though, antibiotics. There's some new research mm. coming out now that shows that B12 is actually produced by certain bacteria in the GI tract. So if you look at that from the perspective of we all have patients who some of them thrive better on a vegetarian diet, some of them do better on a meat-based diet or on a heavier meat diet, if you will. So yeah. what I think is going to come up after all this is that people that do better tend to do better on a vegetarian diet have the bacteria that can produce B12, and so they don't tend to be as at risk for B12 deficiency because they have that bacteria. But all of these people, whether you do better on a plant or a meat-based diet, they all at some point in their lives have probably been exposed to an antibiotic. And so knocking out those flora can contribute to a reduction of the capacity for the bacteria to produce the vitamin B12 as a result of eating the food that we eat. It's so interesting. I want to come back to triggers because I know there are a number of other pharmaceuticals that can also trigger a deficiency. But what you're actually bringing us to is where B12 deficiency could be an antecedent because of the generational microbiome that is off balance. So mom is passing this on to baby. There might be microbial imbalances in baby. Baby could then potentially be born with a propensity for a B12 deficiency. Is that a fair association? I think so. And then you also look at, you know, again, the, even aside from generational, you look at the antibiotic use in meats. Right. You look at the pesticide use. The pesticides affect the microbiome, especially glyphosate, as we're learning more about that particular pesticide Absolutely. and its impact. So definitely. Right. So getting back to those triggers, when we are seeing people and thinking about drug-nutrient interactions, are there any that you commonly see in your practice, like PPIs or metformin, where you would be thinking about testing for B12 immediately? Yes. I mean, I love that you bring that question up because the drug-induced nutritional deficiencies arena is a rampant area where we'll see B12 becoming deficient. You mentioned PPIs. So there's, there's any drug that blocks acid production or that suppresses acid or neutralizes acid in the stomach can be a risk factor for the development of B12 deficiency. And that includes the pink stuff like the Pepto-Bismol, the Tums, the Rolaids, those types of things. So not just things like Nexium or Zantac or Tagamet, but the actual antacids themselves. Then you've got, we mentioned the antibiotics earlier. You also mentioned metformin. Metformin is notorious for causing B12 deficiency, and we yeah. think it might play a role in diabetic neuropathy and that it's not really a diabetic neuropathy, but it's a drug-induced neuropathy on people who are diabetic who are actually taking the medication. Then we also have B12 deficiency that's very, very common in women who are, have a long-standing history of taking estrogen. Mm. So estrogen-based therapies can contribute to multiple B vitamin deficiencies, not just B12, but definitely B12 is on that list. And then you have anti-seizure medications. Seizure medications for people that have a diagnosis of epilepsy, which by the way is linked to gluten sensitivity, interestingly enough, but those people that are on anti-seizure medications have a greater risk for developing vitamin B12 and vitamin B1 deficiency, but B12 in this case. It's so interesting. I have a system that I call the three tiers to epigenetic or nutrition mastery, right? And we start with the non-negotiables as tier one. We go from that to deficiency to sufficiency and then look at dismantling the dysfunction. And I think in functional medicine, 
functional medicine and allopathic medicine, there's a tendency, depending on what the techniques are, to go right to tier three. We're going to dismantle the dysfunction. But what you're speaking into here is we could look at somebody who is depressed and anxious and experiencing these symptoms who's been on birth control for their entire life. And we have to look at how is that impacting the microbiome? How is it inducing deficiencies? And when we look at the whole person, we're able to tease that apart. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at the whole person, in my opinion, clinically speaking, every person that comes through the door should have their micronutrient levels checked, period, without exception, hands down. Because a lot of what we're talking about in today's conversation, particularly B12, is it's a possibility, but it's not a guarantee. There are people that, for example, are on PPIs that don't develop B12 deficiency, right? right? And so if you are speculative then you're guessing at your patients. Right. And if you're guessing at your patients incorrectly, you could lose months of guesswork. And then what happens, what I see at least clinically, is that when patients are listening and they're, and they're confident in your ability to help them and then you don't help them, then they lose their confidence and then they, they may seek some other help, right? They may dismiss functional medicine as a viable option for themselves based on a guess versus based on an actual objective measure of data. I couldn't agree more. One of my other systems that I teach into is called the art of the practice. And art stands for assess, recommend, and track. And we have to make clear assessments before we bring in any recommendations. So in the assessment, it sounds like you do micronutrient testing. Can you talk about some of the testing that you prefer to use for looking at B12 deficiency or sufficiency? Several things. So obviously, from a testing perspective, you've got physical examination testing aspects. So one of the things that I like to test is vibratory sensation, especially in the distal extremities in the toes, because B12 deficiency will oftentimes manifest mm. as a loss of vibratory sensation in the second and third toes first. Although that's not a lab test, it is a very good physical test that can be performed in the office if you're doing, you know, in-office consultation versus phone. Right. Additionally, there are a number of different labs. Methylmalonic acid yep. is one that is, is pretty accurate for vitamin B12. Then you've got homocysteine, which is not specific for B12, but more yes. it's kind of a conglomeration of B12 folate, B2, and B6, and methylation. And then you've also got my favorite, which is intracellular analysis, which is there's a lab in Houston, Texas in my backyard called SpectraCell, and they really have perfected the art of the intracellular analysis of the lymphocyte. And so this is where I, I oftentimes will find where homocysteine might be normal, methylmalonic acid might be normal, where we'll find that B12 deficiency using intracellular analysis. I would deter people away from using serum vitamin B12 measurements. Yep. Not necessarily that you can't use it, but the way I look at it is don't spend your patient's money on tests that don't yield consistency because one of the things that happens with serum levels, there's a proper process called redistribution or liver redistribution. And what happens when a person is vitamin B12 deficient is their liver, which stores extra B12, will redistribute its stored B12 into the serum to distribute that B12 to other tissues that are deficient in it. And if you're running a serum test, you might catch that redistribution and get a false normal looking lab result. The other thing that sometimes happens with the serum testing is if you've got somebody and somebody's supplementing with a B12 yes. supplement and that supplement hits their serum, their levels are going to appear to be high. But if the B12 is not actually getting into the cell where it actually performs most of its functions, then you're going to, again, you're going to get that false normal result. 
That was a great explanation. It's something that I see come up a lot in people making assumptions based on serum B12 levels. When you're looking at methylmalonic acid, are you looking at a serum or a urine? Do you have a preference there? Serum is what I would typically look at, but yeah. I, I would run, when I run methylmalonic acid, it's generally a secondary or a tertiary mm -hmm. test. And, and, and I look at intracellular first. If that comes back normal, but clinically they scream a vitamin B12 deficiency, that's when I might go into a deeper layer of looking at something like a methylmalonic acid. Beautiful. I want to move into the mediators and talk both about food and supplementation. Let's start with food. When you're looking at somebody, working with somebody who has a B12 deficiency, I'm assuming there's foods you're going to eliminate because they are impacting these pathways that allow for the utilization of the B12, but also are there foods that you're bringing in? Well, it depends on the person. And if they're vegan or vegetarian, generally I'll supplement them if their belief system is so strong that they don't want to deviate right. from that. If they're not, and if they're willing to deviate, then liver is one of the best foods that I try to introduce to people. And if they don't like liver, liver encapsulated liver yep. is sometimes a supplemental option that can be tapped into. But beyond that, your red meats, I mean, B12 predominantly in the diet is one of those few nutrients that's pretty much explicit to meats as, as it's a result of bacterial byproduct breakdown of what's in the meat. And that's how the B12 is formed. And you won't get that in any vegetable now, some people will try to gravitate toward algae and toward like nutritional yeast. I'm not a big fan of either one of those. I think it's, it's human evolution. People don't really typically eat algae to sustain themselves. It's not good to do in mass, in my opinion, right. and it's sometimes contaminated with heavy metals. And then it, as well, the, the yeast, the way that a lot of these nutritional yeasts are produced sometimes can pose a problem as well. So let's go into the supplementation. I know there's a lot of different forms of B12. Can you talk us through that and just give us some insight into your clinical insights? Really, there's four major forms of vitamin B12. There's cyanocobalamin, there's hydroxycobalamin, and then there's adenosyl and methylcobalamin. Now, cyanocobalamin from the form perspective is the worst of the four. It's it, to, to break down and get to the B12, you first have to remove the cyano group and then that product has to be methylated. And so to take cyanocobalamin requires the body to take multiple biochemical steps to get a B12 mm -hmm. that can actually work. Now, cyanocobalamin is also the cheapest form, so most supplement manufacturers will use it because they don't care about the product as much as they care about making money on the product. Right. That's sad to say, but it's yeah. the truth. So I don't recommend cyanocobalamin, and a lot of people get injectables. So if we're talking about an injectable, injecting cyanocobalamin into the muscle, it's, again, it still has to go through that same process. An injectable is not necessarily better than, let's say, a sublingual. So let me back up for a minute. Yeah. There's, there's injections, there's sublingual, which would absorb into the cheeks and go straight to the bloodstream, bypassing the GI tract, which is a great option if you've got somebody with inflammatory bowel problems or if you've got somebody with a GI distress issue or history of damage to the gut or a stomach bypass, like a surgery where they've had like a through and Y bypass surgery. And so the, the B12 won't really have a lot of time in the stomach to get bound up with intrinsic factor. So a sublingual is a great way to go for people that have a GI predisposition to not absorbing that B12. 
And then the intramuscular injection is another option Mm -hmm. that you can go with. That can be a good option if you have a methylcobalamin version. Then there's also the oral pills that people can swallow. But again, if they have a gut problem or there's a digestive issue, might not be the best route to go. I like the sublingual. My two favorite forms are methyl and hydroxy. And the reason why I like hydroxy over, let's say, adenosylcobalamin is hydroxy is generally what's found in most food. So it's really easily recognizable by mm-hmm. our bodies. Nice. Methyl is the active version. So if somebody has methylation issues or if they have toxic issues in their environment or they have issues, food allergens or overtoxification from whatever it might be, whatever you're evaluating in those people, I recommend doing a full lab workup to try to determine where a person's toxic environment or toxic burdens are coming from. But if they're under a toxic load, they're going to have a harder time converting hydroxycobalamin into methylcobalamin, the active form. So sometimes giving methylcobalamin is actually the best option. I have two final questions for you. I'm going to try to squeeze them in because this is so fascinating. The first one is, what about a hypersufficiency? Do you see situations where somebody's either they're producing too much or they're taking too much? And what does that look like? It looks a lot like the deficiency. So although B12 is notoriously safe, meaning it has a lower toxicity profile than water, right? I mean, you're more likely to drown from overdrinking than you are to overdose with vitamin B12. But for some people, B12, especially with certain genetic mutations, MTR mutations, MTRR mutations, mm-hmm. sometimes they react really aggressively to B12 and they get agitation or they have really difficult time going to sleep or they just feel bad. So you have to be on the lookout for those types of individuals. If you're giving 5,000 micrograms or more of vitamin B12, and you notice this person is coming back to you saying, I can't sleep, I'm more agitated. It may be time to either look at a different form of B12, like a hydroxycobalamin, it might be more suited for them because it's converted at a slower rate and you won't quite get that overlap. Or you might just consider taking them off of it altogether. Beautiful. And my last question for you is about the kind of tendency to use the IV B12 as like an energy boost that people go in and just like get a shot of B12. What are your thoughts about that? I don't like to break the skin. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime you break the skin, you run the risk for infection. Anytime you inject a needle into somebody, you run the risk of whether or not that needle was contaminated with something else. Beyond that, if we look at where most of these products are being produced, a lot of our drugs now are being produced in China. So if you, if you look at the way China values you know, their manufacturing process in other arenas, for example, dog food, a couple of years ago, there's a major lead contamination issue in dog food. There have been major lead contamination issues in cosmetics. There have been major lead contamination issues in baby food, all coming out of Chinese manufacturing. You know, look where that product is being manufactured. If it's being manufactured overseas, know that it's impossible for any great regulation to be occurring. And so then you have to ask yourself, do you want to run the risk of injecting something that may or may not be what you think it's supposed to be? That's why I generally like to go toward either a supplemental version where I either manufacture it on my own or I know the manufacturer very innately and feel very confident that what we think we're getting is what we're actually getting. Dr. Osborne, I so appreciate your perspective on whole health care and the deep dive we got to take today into vitamin B12. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure.
The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes music by my son, Gilbert Nakayama, and Carla Schaefer on sound production, as well as Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear lots more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you want us to notify you each time a new podcast is released, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll drop into your inbox with a really short reminder that a new episode is ready and waiting for you. And I always love to hear from you. Review the podcast, write us, let us know what you think, who you'd like to hear, what topics you'd like to see mapped on the 15 Minute Matrix. You can always reach out to us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 